Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Heavenly Father, to the most holy triune God, be all glory, honor, and praise. For we come before you to submit to you as our Lord and as our Savior. We thank you for all that you have done for this this week. I pray that this moment you would just bring into reflection all ways in which you have provided for us. Father, in the way that you have strengthened us and encouraged us, and in many ways that you've even restrained us, from more harm. Your goodness and your faithfulness is forever. And I pray that we would realize that this morning and may that cause us to look at you and wonder at your greatness. Cause us to bow down and to worship you. To see how loving you are and how worthy you are. And that you are our object of admiration. Father, I want to give thanks for the scriptures this morning. In so many ways, we take your word for granted. In many ways, we don't even pick it up except on Sundays, if even that. As we just think these last few weeks, there are people, many throughout history, that have given their lives so that we may have it in our own language, that we may have it in complete form. Father, as we come before you this morning, as we look at Mark chapter 16, as we look at having confidence in your word, I pray that you would give us a confidence in your word, a supreme confidence in the scriptures. Thus saith the Lord. And I pray that you would open our hearts to receive it and your spirit would work. And Father, that we too can say, thus saith the Lord, and that phrase means something. Father, there are many needs in our church that many people have, financially, emotionally. And Father, I pray that we would bind together, not just in prayer, but also in finding out what they need. And I pray that you would touch some here who have the resources to help. That, Father, they would say, here am I. What can I do? And Father, we put all these in your own hands. To the King of all ages, immortal, invisible. The only God be honor and glory forever and ever. We pray in Christ's name. And God's people said, Amen. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Mark chapter 16, the last chapter. Here's the question I asked for you this morning Is the Bible relevant for today? Or has it outlived its purpose and its power? In an interview with Oprah Winfrey, Rob Bell, a former pastor, suggested that the Bible is actually irrelevant for today's culture. Mr. Bell writes, We're moments away. I think culture is already there, and the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. Scripture, 2,000 years ago. What does it have for a society that has left many of those types of ideas behind? 
The Huffington Post notes that in a Gallup poll of May 2014, that only 47% of Americans consider the Bible to be the inspired word of God, but not everything in it should be taken literally. So 47% would say, yes, it's the inspired word of God, but yet it should not all be taken literally. And that's really where we have with the society today and many in churches. In a Pew Research published analysis last week on the evangelical vote in the 2016 election season, the one we're in now, using that data from 2014. In it, it said 39% of self-identified evangelical voters do not believe that the Bible is the literal word of God. It is no secret for those of us who have our eyes wide open and listening with our ears that the world today is hostile to the beliefs of Christians that are found in God's word. There's no longer any respect for its place as the literal world of God. Unfortunately, it seems even in many churches today, as well as many who profess to be Christians, that the Bible really is not relevant or have a place today. The last few months, we've seen an outpouring from a very popular church, probably one of the most innovative churches in America, one of the largest churches of America that is not Joel Olstein or Oprah Winfrey, is also has said we should not use Scripture. We should just use the stories of Scripture. We should never say the Scripture says. The Scripture is not relevant to the world today. People coming in do not want to hear the Word of God. They will not accept the Word of God. Now, there were no Gallup or Pew research polls in AD 60s when Mark wrote his gospel. If you would have asked the populace of that day of their views of Scripture, they would have looked at you blankly. What are you talking about? The Christians of that day, though, did take Scriptures seriously. Though they did not have the full New Testament as you and I know it and have them today, they cherished the Old Testament writings along with the letters of Paul that were circulating around the area, along with the writings of Peter, James, and John. They treasured them. They shared them with each other and with churches. It gave them hope, encouragement, and strength in order to face the hostile world. One of the earliest writings, at least as far as the Gospels, was the Gospel of Mark, many believe. Well, last week we read the climax of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has risen. The tomb is empty. Jesus is not here. He is risen and he is looking forward to a great reunion with his disciples, especially Peter, whom he'll embrace and give him another great charge. On January 7th of 2015, Dustin began our study of the gospel of Mark Through 67 messages, we have explored Mark's claim that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Promised One, the branch of David, who came not to serve, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark has given evidence that Jesus has authority over the natural and supernatural worlds. He could calm the storms and he could cast out demons. He had authority over sickness and death. He had authority over the religious leaders and the places of worship, as well as authority over Scripture and the Sabbath. 
He records Jesus' interaction with his followers and with the crowds and even the religious leaders. He notes Jesus' prediction that he will be betrayed, deserted, denied, accused, indicted, and convicted of crimes that he was not guilty of. This will lead to beatings, tortures, and eventually crucifixion. And Mark records that Jesus died on a cross, that he was buried, and then he rose from the grave three days later. This morning, I want to try and accomplish two things. Briefly examine verses 9 through 20 and discuss whether or not they should be included in Mark's ending, as well as share how we can or show how you and I can have confidence in the power of Scripture to transform and inform our Christian walk in a world that is hostile to our faith. Now, as we get to the end of Mark, it ends with a disconcerting note in verse 8, where it says the three women went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they had said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It seems like a very abrupt ending. They end with afraid. So what about verses 9 through 20? Should these be included in our Bibles. Well, let's go ahead and read verses 9 through 20. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Verse 12. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Verse 14, afterwards he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at a table. He rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name or believe in my name, they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them, they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and set down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere where the Lord worked with them and confirmed the messages by accompanying signs. Father, give us your wisdom that we may understand your truths. Let your spirit reign free this morning that we may not quench your spirit, but it be ignited in our lives. Let us listen with our intelligence and our reason. And Lord, let us seek your truth and let us respond. I pray this in your name. Amen. Well, in reference to this passage, the majority of the Bibles today note that in brackets that some of the earliest manuscripts do not include these verses. Some of your Bibles, especially if you have the King James Version or the New King James Version, probably do not include the brackets, but one editor notes that the external evidence of these passages suggests that these were originally not part of Mark's Gospel. While the majority of Greek manuscripts contain these verses, so the most Greek manuscripts do include these, the earliest and most reliable, those ones closest to the time of Jesus, do not. A shorter ending also exists, but it's not included in the text. 
Further, some include the passage, note that it was missing from the older Greek manuscripts. They could not find it, while others have scribal marks indicating the passage was considered spurious or fake. Someone had wrote them in. Fourth century church fathers, Eusebius and Jerome, those that lived around 300 AD, noted that almost all Greek manuscripts available to them at that time lack these verses. So there's some external verse. The, these weren't found until later manuscripts. There was a blank there. And so it, it gives us kind of a proof or an evidence that they must have been added afterwards. The internal evidence of looking at them themselves also weigh heavily against it. The transition between verses 8 and 9 is abrupt and awkward. The Greek participle translated now that begins in verse 9 implies continuity with the preceding narrative, but what follows is not. It's an introducing of a character of someone who's already been introduced earlier. The angel appearing in the tomb of Jesus, as you might remember from last week, had told his followers to go to Galilee, yet all the appearances in this passage of Scripture are actually in Jerusalem. And finally, the presence of a significant number of Greek words that are used nowhere else, and Mark argued that Mark did not write them. While for the most part, summarizing truths in these verses should always be compared with the rest of Scripture. No doctrine should be formulated based on them. In other words, we don't have much new information here. It's like they took and said, well, you know, here's what Matthew might have said. Here's what John said. Here's what Luke said. And it seems so abrupt just to end with them being afraid. We need to add some more to Mark. But as we examine these verses, we notice that for the most part, there's no new information that is given that's not found in the other Gospels. There's no attempt here, I believe, to deceive the readers of Mark, but just an attempt to harmonize it with the rest of the Gospels. We don't feel like there's any harm that's trying to be done here. It's just someone trying to be more harmonizing with the rest of Scripture to continue the narrative further than the resurrection. One item of note that's not found anywhere else, though, is verse 14 where it's recorded that Jesus rebuked the disciples for their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Now this would seem to contradict the good news that Jesus was looking forward to a reunion with Galilee with his disciples to encourage him. It seems harsh that Jesus would begin to rebuke them once a reunion has taken place. In addition, only one mention in the Gospels of a disciple who did not believe, talking about Thomas, of one who did not believe the testimonies of the other disciples. There's two items, though, that are doctrinally in nature that are raised. Verse 16 proclaims that whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. This is where some denominations get regenerational baptism, the belief that one must be baptized in order to be truly saved. Again, this would contradict the rest of scriptures that declare if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God is raised from the dead, you will be saved. The second is the source of snake handling from verse 18 where he reads, they will pick up serpents with their hands and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Now this is true that the apostle Paul had an encounter with a snake and he lived. But this passage led many in errors in worship and belief. Nowhere else is this type of promise given or instructed. Another editor writes that while the added ending offers no new information, nor does it contradict previously rated events or doctrine other than those two. Both the external and the internal evidence makes it quite clear that Mark did not write it. In reality, ending his gospel with verse 8, with the description of the amazement of the women in the tomb, 
is actually entirely consistent with Mark's narrative, where he says they were amazed at the teaching. They were amazed, so they debated among themselves. He healed the paralect, and they were amazed and were glorifying God. Astonishment at the work of Jesus has been revealed throughout Mark's brief narrative. Some of the early scribes, however, apparently missed this thematic and felt the need to add more conventional ending. So with that, we conclude that Mark 16, 9 through 20 is not part of the original text of Mark and that we should read those passages with discernment and wisdom. So with that, we're not going to continue on with those passages. Obviously, that probably raises more questions than answers. So I'm always free to answer more of those questions if you like. Dustin and I would be willing to sit down with you and share that. But what we want to do is we want to start with Mark and what we believe is Mark's complete passage. Again, the passage that he continues is found in Matthew, and we went through those in Matthew. It's found in John and in Luke, and we'll get to those books as we continue on in our study. But I want to go with what they had, the readers of Mark at that time. And that's why I want to move to point number two, because I believe this is what's important. The Mark gospel Mark is now given to these just church of Rome during a difficult time. And so the point number two that I want to spend the majority of our time here is having confidence in the power of Scripture to transform and inform our Christian walk in a world that's hostile to our faith. And here's where I really want you to track with me this morning. We have said many times in the course of this gospel, of reading and studying this gospel of Mark, that Mark is writing to the Christians in the church of Rome. They are undergoing immense persecution, and his desire is to encourage them to share in the sufferings of Christ. He is telling them that it is time to count the cost and to forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. Like Paul, he wants them to press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Mark might be remembering that Jesus himself had warned his disciples that if anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. As Christians, especially living in Rome during this time, there was much to renounce. One historian lists nine marks of Roman decadence. Let me give those to you. Track with me if you would, because I think as you hear these, they're going to sound very familiar. First, they trusted in a multiplicity of gods. They didn't have one god. They were polytheistic. That was one thing that they struggled with Christianity and the Jewish religion. You believed in only one god? That was odd to them. They faced serious erosion of family ties in that day. The family was eroding and and those natural affections were starting to fade. They expressed an inordinate desire for luxury. They desired more downtime. They desired more entertainment. Human life became cheap. For the Roman life, abortion was something that was normal. But in those days, they would not abort it in the womb. They let the child be born if it was not what they wanted male or female or some other type of thing, they would just leave it exposed in the wilderness to allow an animal to come and to feed on it. Or many of those children would be rescued by other men and women and then put into a life of slavery. Human life was cheap. Roman society displayed overt sexual deviation and perversion. 
They would go to great extremes to outdo one another in their perversion of sexual entertainment and pleasure. Pornography and perversion in art were actually common. Pompeii, after that, had been destroyed by the earthquake. For years, they would only let archaeologists in because of the art was too perverted for others to come in and see. Drunkenness became common. The government was by personality rather than law that led Roman to cultic practices, what we know as the imperial cult. And Rome placated the masses by paternalism in which they gave up more and more of their rights and expected the government to take care of them. And more and more of that became uh, where they began to stop working, where they stopped doing the things and become part of a community. I know as you're listening to this, as I was writing it and researching it, you might notice that these marks also describe the world today. Many of us today have been or are guilty of many of these vices ourselves. And even maybe in our perception of how the world should be. Paul had warned the Corinthian church that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. He writes, do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This definitely describes the age of that time as it does ours. However, we are called to serve a new life as we discovered last week. Paul, continuing in his letter to the Corinthian church, reminds them that such were some of you. This is how your lifestyle was. It was characterized by these activities, by these mindsets. But he says, but you were washed. You have now been sanctified. You're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And because the lifestyle of those Roman Christians were so different from the rest of the world, it made everything else shine forth. Because of their stance for living for God, and living through Scripture. Christians of those times were accused of being cannibals because of the Lord's Supper. You eat of the flesh and drink of the blood of your Savior? They were accused of incestuous because they would call brothers and each other's brothers and sisters and they would kiss each other and be more so and people would misinterpret that. They were atheists. In other words, you were an atheist because you denied polytheism. Or you were a traitor because you refused to worship Caesar as God. And as we saw last week, there was false accusations that the Christians hated the human race. If that was not enough. Those accusations, those perceptions because of their lifestyle led to their persecution, including death. Tactitus, a Roman historian, records that in their very deaths, they were made subjects of sport. It was not enough to just kill them or to put them to death. They had to make sport of it. They were covered with hides of wild beasts and attacked to death by dogs. They were nailed to crosses and then set on fire. And when the day would get dark, they would be used as the street lamps. So they continue chariot races or their pleasure. You and I must remember that it's in this context in this environment, in this, that day of decadence and perversion, it was into that context Mark writes his gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Mark chapter 13 for a matter of review.
In Mark chapter 13, looking at verse 9, you might recall that Jesus had warned the disciples that this day would be coming, a day of persecution. For Jesus said, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. But this is speaking mainly of the disciples at that time. We're thinking of a Jewish context in the synagogues, the Jewish persecution. But he says, not only did this is me saying, but not only will the disciples face persecution, but the church throughout history will also face similar persecution. Look at verse 11. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it's not you who seek, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and his father his child, and his children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The apostle John had also recorded the warning of Jesus in John chapter 7, when he says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are are evil. Let me tell you, the Roman church, as they were living out their Christian life, it was testifying how evil their works were. In John chapter 15, he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The Roman world, just as today's world, hates Jesus. Let me say it again. The Roman world in that day, just as today, hates Jesus. Now, wait a second. You may say, everyone loves Jesus. And there's a sense you might say that. They might like some of his moral teachings. They might like some of his sayings. They might like the way he was about peace. But in reality, they have so distorted Jesus' teaching, Jesus' character, and Jesus' ministry, that the Jesus of the gospel that the world likes has been so redefined and repositioned that Jesus is nothing more than just a super type of Gandhi. That's what he is. He's just a good moral teacher that wants everyone to be a better you. Listening to Christian radio uh, last night on the way here, and that's pretty much the message I was getting from Christian radio. It's about being a better you. Speaking to someone on Facebook this week, they didn't believe in the Bible. They didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. We just need to be better persons. However, you might define that. What defines a better person? What's the standard to know whether someone is good or bad? In our culture today, that can change. In the Roman world, you were good if you were perverted. You were good if you were sleeping around. You were good if you served and and worshipped Caesar as God. So what does it mean to be good today? Perversion, sexual deviancy, all sorts of things. is what defines one as good. We have come to the place, just as the Roman world did, is we call good evil and we call evil good. Yet Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. These commands of Jesus, my friends, are not optional. They are not suggestions designed to enhance your life, your retirement account, or to be a better you. 
The commands of Christ are life-killing. They are self-denying and sin-destroying words. They will literally cost you everything you hold dear. For Jesus demands your whole life. And that's my question. To these readers of Mark in the first century who are dying because they profess Christ, the question must be, can I trust these words? Is this something worth dying for? And I believe today that the Christian world today is finding themselves too passive when it comes to the words of Christ. More worn willing to compromise and to back off of the commands of Christ. So the question one might ask is, how does the scripture give us confidence to live this type of life? How can you have confidence in scripture that you'd be willing to allow yourself to be persecuted, to be ridiculed, and maybe to the point of death? The scripture, the commands of God sufficient to help me to live out the new life in Christ, or have they become irrelevant? Something that we just need to negotiate with the world so that we can live at peace. Richard Caldwell, in the Expositor blog this past week, wrote that in Wayne Grumman in the Systematic Theology offers this following definition. Because what I want to propose to you this morning is that the Word of God is sufficient for these times to follow. God's Word is more than just a record of narratives and evidences of who Jesus is. It's more than just a, a collection of His moral teachings and a list of His miracles and more than just a book of, of examples. Some say it's just a guidebook or rule book for their life, but I believe it's much more than that. It's sufficient for us to live our lives. It's sufficient for you and I to be willing to give our lives, to count the cost and give it all. But Wayne Grumman in his systematic theology offers this definition of sufficiency. He says the sufficiency of scriptures means that scripture contains all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history. In other words, he, each stage as we went throughout history, he would give him his word. He would give him the book of Moses. He would give him the Psalms. And then he would rise up prophets and he would rise up other kings who would write books that were necessary and sufficient for that time. The same with as we go through scripture, as was written in that first century, after Christ died and rose again, he would reveal his word and was sufficient for all things. That it now contains everything that you and I need for God to tell us for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, and for obeying Him perfectly. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. See, I believe God's Word is sufficient. You and I do not need Jesus' calling. It's a new book in which someone is revealing what Jesus has told her. We all believe, well, Jesus needs to tell me something new. We're all looking for new revelation. But as we turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, a famous portion of Scripture, very familiar. To put it simply, you and I must believe in more than just what the Bible says it is. You and I must believe in what the Bible says it's able to do. 
And here's my proclamation is that for the readers of Mark's gospel, they believed that the scriptures that they had was able to do something. It could accomplish something. I wonder, do you believe that today? Do you believe that the Bible is actually able to do something, accomplish something? Or is it something that you're sometimes embarrassed about? Especially in today's debate of worldviews, what's wrong and what's right. We must believe that the Bible says it's something that we're able to do. So I'm going to give you three things. It's here on on the screen if you'd like to take notes. The scripture is sufficient for these three things. The first one is scripture is sufficient to instruct us for salvation. How do I come before God, a holy God, knowing whether or not I have been justified, been made right with them? Well, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, you're there. Look at verse 14. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. Speaking to Timothy, Paul writes, But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Those are the writings of the Old Testament. He says, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Peter tells us that we have been born again. Remember we looked at last week? We have been born again. We have been made alive. Not a perishable seed, but of imperishable. How? Through the living and abiding word of God. More than just a list of things. The Bible instructs how you and I could be made right with God. And here's the tension that we live in this world because everyone is saying, well, we should be able to get to God in any way. Well, I can get to God through the Jehovah Witnesses, through the Mormons, through Muslim. There are many ways to God. That's not what Scripture says. That's not the command of Christ. He's exclusive. It's only through Christ. No other name given among men whereby we must be saved than the name of Jesus. Acts chapter 4 verse 12. And this goes against the world because everyone is looking for their way to get up the mountain. Picture a mountain and picture heaven or God at the type or some type of supreme being. Everyone wants to get to that mountain and they're choosing so many different ways of how they can make their life better and attain perfection or some type of peace. And as everyone tries to use their religious system, their man-made works, or some other type of belief or worldview, they're all trying to navigate through all those curves and switchbacks of a mountain trying to reach the top. But let me share with you in Christianity... You and I do not work our way up the mountain. God comes down from the mountain, picks me up, and takes me up there. Amen? For we're saved by God, from God, and only by Him. You and I must realize that as the world, as they work their way, trying to make themselves right. There's only one way. It instructs us for salvation, of how we can be right with God how his wrath can be appeased, and how we can have eternity with them. Scripture is also sufficient to equip you and I for Christian life. Now, for this is where I think many people struggle, because they believe, well, I, I, I believe it for salvation. And so they say the prayer, they accept Christ, they repeat after me, they get baptized, 
And then they go on with their life as if Scripture has no other meaning than just a devotional from time to time. You're still in 2 Timothy. Look at chapter 3. Let's follow on with Paul writes. For he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is where you and I need to be. You and I need to be equipped so that we may please our Savior, that we may be mature, that we may be able to do those things that God has called us to do, to love God with all our heart, our soul, and our might, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Everyone loves that. We call it the golden rule. But we fail so often. If you were to talk to the world, so to speak, the world at this age, they would desire to do good to your neighbor. That's what they're trying to do, but they have it all wrong. They don't understand. Doing good to your neighbor really winds up doing harm to them. We live in such an age as to tell someone that they're wrong or that their philosophy is wrong or their worldview is harmful would be a sin to them. Allow everyone to live their life the way they want. The church is very much the same. The church, I believe, has lost many of its power because those who profess Christ are not living out the Word of God. They haven't allowed Scripture to equip them. You've heard me say this. These things are redundant, but they're important for us to learn. For Scripture is inspired by God, breathed out by God, and is profitable for what? For teaching. What does that mean? To tell us what is right and what's wrong. You think, well, I've learned these things. Oh, what was it? Uh, one um, reverend wrote years ago, everything I need to know in life I learned in kindergarten. You know, put my toys up, don't hit my neighbor, be good, you know, eat what's put in place to me. You know, all these little simple little things. Uh, it was a very big book back in the, the 70s, maybe the 80s. But it's to teach you what's wrong and what's right. For we live in a world in which they don't no, there are Christians who are struggling. What is wrong and what is right? How do we deal with the issues that are now today, whether it's transgenderism or, or traditional marriage or gay marriage or about abortion or all these issues that are now such a political rail? How do we deal with it? Does the character of our presidential candidates, does it matter? Or should we ignore those things? I'm here to tell you the scripture is sufficient to help us through these landmines that you and I face every day. We may not like what it says. We may not agree, but the Bible is sufficient. It tells us what is wrong and what is right. Now, right now, that flies in the face. Because to be honest, you and I do not want to be told what is wrong and what is right. That's the original sin, right? Don't tell me not to eat of the fruit. Don't tell me that I cannot be a God. But it also tells us not only what is right and wrong, but it also tells us when we go off the rails and we are wrong. When he says for reproof, it tells us this is wrong. And also for correction, how to get right. So if this is my belief, and this is what is affecting, but now scripture comes in and says, oh, by the way, you should not be sleeping with other men's wives. Oh, oh okay, well, how do I correct that? I'm taking an extreme one. Oh, I'm not supposed to be angry with people? Well, how do I change that? It helps us understand that as well. It's training in righteousness. How to stay right. 
Let me share with you, the Christian church for us at OVBC, we need to be instructed by Scripture to equip us that we may live a Christian life that makes us mature and prepares us for the things of God. So sad when you see churches and Christians who are struggling with these very things, and we should. We should struggle with these things because they're weighty things. You know, when we talk about these political issues, the thing that we forget sometimes is that there are real people behind those issues. There's a young man or a young woman that is struggling, maybe to the point of taking their own life because they just don't understand. This is not to say that we don't uh, come in and we love them and we don't come in and care for them. But loving and caring means telling the truth. Speak the truth in love. So not only is it able and sufficient to instruct us for salvation, but also to equip us to live the Christian life. If I could say anything here, just pastorally, this is my own words, I want to do this for myself. And I want it for you. I've spoken to so many and had so many in my office whose lives are marked by sin and the consequences of sin because of not being equipped for a Christian life. And they've neglected the word of God. And number three, Scripture is sufficient to completely care for the church. That's why in this we call Bible church. It's not Orange Villa Society Club, Christian Club. It's Bible church. Why? Because we believe it's the Bible that tells us how to care for one another. The 65 one another's in Scripture. In Acts chapter 20, if you're quick enough, you can get there. In Acts chapter 20, verse 32, it writes, And now I commend you, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. For us in this church, we have our articles of faith. We go to the Bible and we say, this is how we will deal with things. This is how we live out. This is how we will work out the callings and the truths of God. The scripture is sufficient to completely care for our church and for you. And I pray that you've embraced that. Well, how will a belief in the sufficiency of scripture inform our approaches to ministry? Well, our confidence will be found in Scripture in defining and defending our worldview. What is it that you believe? And what is it that you believe is wrong or right? How can you define that using Scripture? I believe Scripture helps us through some of those landmines and some of those personal things sometimes that become so strong that we don't know how to deal with them. Our confidence will be in God and His Word for encouragement in the face of discouragement and despair it allows us to come and say well I, I feel down I feel depressed well I'll tell you what so did David he wrote some psalms that seems to me that he could almost have sword in hand ready to fall on it calling out to God where are you where are you my God my God why have you forsaken me those originally were the words of David also we can have confidence in God and his word for the answers that we need to give people both saved and lost as well as for peace in the midst of persecution and hostility in a culture that is aligned against God's word. The readers of Mark 
In those days, it's the same as those who are reading it today. We live in a world that is hostile to his word. Greg Ellison writes that because Scripture is the word of God, to obey Scripture is to obey God. To disobey Scripture is to disobey God himself. I'd like to finish up this morning in 2 Peter. Would you turn there? We read Scripture reading a little bit earlier. But I would like for you to leave this morning with confidence that the Word of God is sufficient in this world that's as hostile to us today as it was to those in Rome. No, none of us are being lit up as light torches. None of us are being put in wild animal hides and set upon by dogs or in gladiators. But we're moving into a world that's just as hostile with our finances and with our businesses and with our beliefs and tolerances. In 2 Peter chapter 1, early in our scripture reading, the Apostle Paul had reminded his readers that they had become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. You and I have escaped that corruption, and he's calling us now to live out that escape, not to run back in, but to stay out. Peter continues in verse 12 of chapter 1. Paul encourages them, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, Paul writes, to stir you up in a way of reminder with my every breath. As long as I'm here, I'm going to provoke you back to those truths. Look at verse 14. Since I know that the putting off of my body, the dying, he's talking about dying, will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Peter writes, I will make every effort so that after my departure, after my death, you may be able at any time to recall these things. What does he want them to recall? He wants them to recall that they have been given a new divine nature. They have escaped the corruption of the flesh. But now on, he wants them to recall their new walk in Christ, their new way of living that we spoke about last week. But now let's continue in verse 16. For Peter reminds them that the power to recall those things, the power to live out those life is actually found in Scripture. Look at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God, God the Father, and the voice was born to him, by his majestic glory, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. You may recall they heard his voice audibly. In verse 18, he says, we heard this ourselves, this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on that holy mountain. But look at verse 19. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. You may want to underline that. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Just as those readers of Mark and the readers here of Peter, they are shining lamps in a dark place, you and I as well. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let me end with this. 
The scripture gives you and I confidence. It gives us the power and the instructions that you and I need to live in a world that is hostile to the claims of Christ. I would challenge you then to embrace them, to read them, to memorize them, and to cherish them. For it's our power to live out the life that pleases God. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I would just ask for you to take a moment to pause, to consider, to pray, and to respond. What may God be calling you this morning? Is it time for you to embrace the sufficiency of Scripture in living out your life? Father, we just come before you and I thank you for your word. More powerful and stronger than any two-edged sword. Lord, you have given your revelation so that we may not only find salvation, but that you and I, that all of us may be equipped to please you and that we may care for one another. Father, I pray that you would give us the courage and the boldness of a Peter and a Paul and of those that were in those Roman church that were willing to die because Jesus is Lord. Let us learn that art of self-denying, of self-killing, and sin-destroying that comes from the power of your word. May it inform us, may it enlighten us, and Lord, may it challenge us in our life. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith@orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.